my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to reveal some harsh truths. We're going to reveal who Alan Smithy really is. Oh, yes, Virginia, there is an Alan Smithy. Are we going to start this podcast like everybody who has ever written an article or you know, done anything about Alan Smithy starts it with where they're like, he's one of the most prolific directors in Hollywood. He's tackled every genre, but he's never been seen on a red carpet. So who is Alan Smithy? Yes, we just did. Oh, <laughs> shit. You go, everybody. shit. So Alan Smithy, he is the pseudonym that would be imposed on films by the Directors Guild of America when a director was dissatisfied with the final product and that he proved to the satisfaction of a guild panel that they had not been able to exercise creative control over a film. Now, let's start by saying we are a notorious podcast. Oftentimes, we talk about things from a directorial perspective. But did you know, dear audience, that there are many hands that make a movie? Uh, I don't believe that. I need a citation on that. That's not true. Yes, that is true. Sometimes the director loses control, and perhaps a producer comes in and does the directing. But because good old Hollywood, you can't backstab anybody or you know say a mean word in public because perhaps it will come to bite you in the ass you don't always hear about it but the alan smithy moniker gives the audience a frisson of oh boy this was a troubled production i gotta know more about this yeah sometimes the producer is the most powerful film on a production sometimes the star is the most powerful person on the production as was the case with 1969's death of a gunfighter a western starring richard widmark the story behind that film is that it was originally directed by one Robert Totten, but after clashing with Richard Widmark, he left the production and was replaced for the last weeks by no less than Don Siegel of Dirty Harry fame. However, neither man felt they were the true author of the film. Neither man wanted their name in the credits, so the Directors Guild came up with this compromise solution. Alan Smithy. Now, the thing about the Alan Smithy name is... You want to believe that it's like, oh, wow, what secrets does this contain if an Alan Smithy name was used? But just listen to the story that Will just said. A film directed by Robert Totten. Your favorite, Robert Totten, right? <laughs> no, you don't know who that is. And that's pretty much the going story of any film with Alan Smithy in the directorial credit. It's oftentimes some hack that for some reason or another wanted just not his name to be on it, and the movie reflects that fact. Now, Alan Smithy has become this very famous name. Everyone knows what Alan Smithy is. Yeah, thanks to the hot film Burn, Hollywood Burn. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think I've always had a sort of slight interest in Alan Smithy as a phenomenon because, of course, rumors of behind-the-scenes havoc are interesting and the directors who take the alan smithy credit or took the alan smithy credit apparently had to swear an oath to never talk about the film i don't know how legally binding that oath was but they they would never talk about the film they would never claim credit for the film they would never badmouth the film at least that was the agreement that was made with the director's guild yeah because if they did they wouldn't get paid yeah so oftentimes with these films like you're looking for some information any information and and you can't find it so that 
that's interesting. I don't know, like, have you ever had any interest in exploring this canon of films, which are, are smaller than you think they are? No, because it just takes a quick look at any article about this, you know, legendary pseudonym. And I'm like, oh boy, no, thank you. So folks, I'll tell you what some of the most famous Alan Smithy films are. These are the letterboxed rankings. Hellraiser Bloodline, Maniac Cop 3, Catch Fire, Burn Hollywood Burn, Bloodsucking Pharaohs in Pittsburgh, The Birds 2, Land's End, Appointment with Fear, Death of a Gunfighter, and who could forget, the Cheech Marin Crocodile Dundee ripoff, Shrimp on the Barbie. Oh my god, we should have watched Shrimp on the Barbie. Justin, I want to tell you something. I've seen Shrimp on the Barbie. (laughs) Why? There's not a good story behind it. I recall finding a $1 VHS copy and giving it to a friend of the podcast, Dan Berube, for his birthday as a gag gift. (laughs) And we watched it together. And apparently director Michael Gottlieb, best known for such films as A Kid in King Arthur's Court and Mr. Nanny, felt that his vision had been compromised. And I mean, having seen the film, it didn't look any better or worse than those movies to me. But Isn't that the thing that we're going to say about almost all the movies? that we talk about i've directed some stuff i've had some stuff that i've made edited by other people it is maddening when you're like i can't believe they cut off a few seconds there or they moved this shot to this shot it would work so much better if it's different but a lot of the films that we're talking about today it's like it's like it's hacks that directed these movies well this is kind of what's interesting about this subject i think this is more than any other the reason why i wanted to do it this week and when you suggested this topic my eyes lit up and i was so excited to do it to my eternal regret (laughs) whenever you read about the alan smithy pseudonym directors had to apply to the directors guild of america they had to prove that the movie wasn't just bad it wasn't just uh, tampered with a little bit but it represented a fundamental change of vision this movie that was released did not represent the movie they set out to make and it was taken away from them it was out of their control you know not to get too far ahead of ourselves but we watched the birds Two lands End this week and i cannot fathom how any version of it would have looked any different than the version we watched oh uh, yeah i'm just looking at the list of this And it's like Student Bodies, a very goofy Zucker Brothers style movie, which was directed by Mickey Rose, but supposedly Michael Ritchie did most of the directing. Like, how was it different than what the director intended? How do you prove something like that to the Directors Guild? Do you show up with a bunch of storyboards and you're like, this is what I wanted to do. This was my intention. They took it away from me and they destroyed it. I mean, there is this third party arbiter, the Directors Guild that makes the decision. And it's not a decision that's made lightly because the Directors Guild has over the years worked very hard to establish the director as the primary creative force behind the film so that means the director also has to take responsibility it can't just be a bad movie it has to be a fundamentally different a truly compromised movie for them to do it Another reason why relatively few films had the Alan Smithy credit, at least in the director category, was because it would be a bad career move for most directors to take it. There are all sorts of brutally compromised movies, all sorts of movies that were taken out of directors' hands that perhaps could have 
qualified for the Alan Smithy credit, but most directors who want to work in Hollywood aren't going to alienate the studio like that. Because when you get the Alan Smithy credit, you're not just disowning the movie, but you are like that. That is an attack on that movie. That is an attack on the studio's bottom line. By having that credit on the movie, you're saying that this is a troubled movie. And if people know, oh, he took his name off of that, you don't get that many jobs because you're perceived as someone that, you know, won't step into line when the producers try to put their foot down. Yeah. And I mean, they obviously didn't have the Alan Smithy credit back in the 1940s, but like, could the Magnificent Ambersons have qualified? Probably. So like some of the movies that we're talking about are made by people who have a career and they're pretty well cemented and they may be on the fringes, but they probably felt enough of a confidence that they can slap it on and move on because people already knew who they were. Like, for example, me and Will, we both watched Catch Fire, a.k.a. Backtrack, directed by Dennis Hopper. Well, this was another one of my agendas for wanting to do this episode because I've been uh, getting kind of into the directorial filmography of Dennis Hopper lately. I revisited Easy Rider recently. I watched Out of the Blue. I thought they were both excellent. And so I wanted to see what else was on the fringes of Dennis Hopper's directorial career. And also just the fact that Dennis Hopper, I mean, the last movie was this very famous troubled production. He had this reputation for a long time for turning in these first cuts that were like three hours long. And then other people would have to come in and kind of make sense of these rambling things that he made. The the last movie is the obvious example. Now, I know Catch Fire, which is... A neo-noir film, I think it's fair to say, from 1990, starring Hopper and Jodie Foster. The theatrical version, which carries the Smithy credit, was 98 minutes long. There is a 118-minute director's cut that has Hopper's name, and the original cut, which may very well have just been the assembly cut, was 180 minutes. Yeah, and I kind of flipped through his director's cut just to see what the big differences are. And it's like, scenes are longer. It has the same basic structure. It doesn't end as abruptly as the theatrical version ends, which is like, that's like a big F you from whoever put it together. So Catch Fire stars Jodie Foster as a young artist who after her car breaks down on the side of a highway, as she walks to the side of the highway to this uh, kind of factory set, she accidentally witnesses a mob assassination. So she flees. She considers entering the witness protection program, but instead she goes on the run, ends up completely reestablishing her life in another city, but the mob does not give up. They send a deadly assassin played by Dennis Hopper to find her. However, in pursuing her, Dennis Hopper falls in love with her, and the second half is a sort of Stockholm syndrome romance between the two of them problematic one could say yeah you could say that that plot synopsis does not convey the absolutely insane cast this movie has the credits are full of exciting names but then there are all sorts of people who are not credited all sorts of very unlikely people so you're watching this movie and folks i hate to spoil it but i'm going to dean stockwell's in it Fred Ward, John Turturro, Charlie Sheen shows up as Jodie Foster's boyfriend in a major supporting role, not credited in the credits, is Joe Pesci. And that's not even the best of it, because Vincent Price is the mob boss. And who shows up when Dennis Hopper is just doing his investigation? Who shows up gratuitously for a minute as one of Jodie Foster's artist friends? Bob Dylan. Now, did you know he was coming? I had no idea he was coming. <laughs> so were you, you probably jumped up in your seat. You're like, yeah. I, I, I could not believe it. <laughs> <laughs> he must have been pals with Hopper, I guess. How 
it's why else would he be in this movie? And I mean, it has tons of little cameos too. Like Alex Cox shows up. Uh, Catherine Keener is there for like one scene before leaving. I mean, the Bob Dylan one, I just want to pause on it because he plays the, like he's an artist. He's got a chainsaw. He's doing this like really wild art. He's on screen for less than a minute and he delivers dialogue I mean, I don't know how to describe it except to say that he's just a horrible actor. You know, he just he, oh, he's yeah, terrible. He, he just cannot <laughs> cannot deliver a line. It's it's incredible. Who is this guy? He's not cool. <laughs> Was he cool at one point? And and like you're watching him, and it's like, why is he here? And why did Hopper cast him in this role? Why why would you just in this absolute throwaway role that means nothing and has no impact on the plot? Would you cast this incredibly loaded? pop culture icon i don't know it's baffling it's one of the reasons why i guess i'm kind of glad i watched this movie it is a movie that i really enjoyed probably the first half when she's on the run and it was just cameo after cameo and hopper his late period style is like very goof-tastic like lots of Dario argento style lighting wild camera moves his role as a hitman that's after Jodie Foster is just playing Weirdosville. He's playing the sax all the time. Oh my god, he's playing the sax like Jim Carrey does in the number 23. Just passionate. Uh, I have to uh, spoil it for you, Will. In the director's cut, the final shot is not uh, them escaping. It's him and Jodie Foster on a boat with Dennis Hopper rocking out on the sacks and the credits roll over that. Well, I mean, this had a troubled production. I think he and Jodie Foster didn't get along, which is is not surprising given the decisive lack of chemistry on screen. The romance in the second half of this film is unconvincing, to say the least. Painful, to say the least. Uh, first of all, Dennis Hopper is giving this incredibly mannered, you know, very outre performance with a really weird accent. And again, all of this cartoonish saxophone playing, and all of a sudden they're in love. You just don't buy it. I mean, I can imagine, honestly, no scenario, even with five more hours of footage when this romance would have worked but it definitely feels like a movie that had a lot of footage taken out of it and yeah you know whenever vincent price shows up i'm happy you know joe pesci doing the joe pesci thing overall this movie had kind of tough guys don't dance vibes for me oh absolutely even though i think i prefer tough guys don't dance well yeah it's it's funnier it's better it's it's more fun you know this movie it doesn't quite rise to the level of being a good movie. It doesn't fully rise to the level of being a funny oddity, but it did hold my attention throughout. It was unusual enough, and there was enough strange things going on that I didn't regret watching it. Now, speaking of regretting watching things, how about uh, the next film we watch, Birds 2, Land's End? Yes, so Justin and I just watched this movie. We're just humming with the experience of watching Rick Rosenthal. Yes, that's right, the director of Halloween 2 and Halloween Resurrection. His TV movie version, or sequel, to The Birds. I think you were right the first time. It's his version of The Birds. The reason that I suggested we watch this is because we watched two other movies that I felt were sort of atypical Alan Smithy movies. And this one seems like right in the center of Smithy land. This feels like this looks like the, you know, quintessential Alan Smithy movie, a movie that was directed by a hack that has no reputation to speak of. So we should watch one of those. What's weird about Rick Rosenthal taking like an Alan Smithy credit on this is that like he was a TV king. And by the time that he did Birds 2 Land's End, he had already directed like three other TV movies. So it's like, who cares? 
The only reason I can think him wanting to take this credit is that he w- suddenly realized, whoa, I did a sequel to a Hitchcock film and it's a TV movie. Better get my name off of this bad boy. I guess he argued it successfully to the Directors Guild. I don't know. The only thing I can imagine them like really editing is maybe adding more violence in it. Like it's not a particularly violent film, but there's uh, the story that when he made Halloween 2, he shot it to imitate John Carpenter's style. And when the studio saw the cut, they were like, ah, we need a lot more violence in this. And John Carpenter actually went to shoot all the kill scenes in Halloween 2. And perhaps if that happened to him again with Birds 2 lands in, he's like, that's it. I don't want my name on this. I suspect you're probably right. That must be it. Because there's a fair amount, I mean, not a really memorable amount, but a fair amount of gory bird attacks in the second half. And it lingers on the gore more than Hitchcock ever did. I could see Rick Rosenthal being like, well, this is my chance to really do Hitchcock. This is my chance to get really suspenseful. And, you know, um, and uh, he failed. Oh, yeah. The film is shot like a TV movie. There's like no style. It's incredibly boring and suspense free. Oh, I wanted to die. Like if you came in to any moment of the film, you'd be like, is this the first 15 minutes? Like even the last 15 minutes. It's structured very similarly to the original Birds where the first half is just uh, just a drama with people and the second half has all the bird attacks. It's about a family moving to the town of Land's End, which I guess was the town from the first movie. I can't remember. But uh, most importantly, Tippi Hedren did return. However, not as the same character she played in the first movie. Even though the birds does exist in the world of the birds too because they mentioned one more thing i'll mention about this movie is you said while we were watching it that if this exact same movie shot for shot was directed by bruno mattei or was an italian film of some kind maybe claudio fergasso made it then severin or vinegar syndrome would be selling it on a 60 dollars blu-ray right now and your answer was no it wouldn't and i went yeah it'd probably be produced by joe d'amato and you went you're right yes that's right like there was like some explosions in it there were some gory close-ups yeah, people would be like, hey, I, I like it. I spent $60 on yeah, it. Yeah, my only feeble defense here is it would have a better musical score if Joe D'Amato produced it. I agree with you. And, and the dialogue would be worse. So a little bit more like campy and by that more enjoyable. I mean, a Joe D'Amato discipline did direct Killing Birds, a.k.a. Zombie 5, <laughs> which only has one bird attack in case anybody was wondering. So the last movie that we watched, Will, the big buildup to this masterpiece. The one that killed the Alan Smithy name. Burn, Hollywood, burn an Alan Smithy film. This is notable because after this, the Directors Guild retired the name Alan Smithy. There have been films made since that directors have taken their names off, but no more has there been uh, just a one, one pseudonym for all of them. So an Alan Smithy film, Burn, Hollywood, Burn, is directed by Arthur Hiller, who did Love Story and lots of bad movies. And it was written by Joe Esterhaus, who wrote Basic Instinct and Showgirls. Joe Esterhaus produced the film, and he allegedly took it away from Arthur Hiller. And this is this is definitely Joe Westerhouse's baby. It is, uh, I, I got, I'm, I'm losing stamina just talking about this movie. It's, it's so bad. I should say, I want to give uh, Arthur Hiller one win in his corner because he did direct The Hospital. Have you seen it? The Patty Chayefsky written movie starring George C. Scott. Did he do The In-Laws? Was that him? Yes, he did as well. He also did W.C. Fields and Me. Yeah, that one's not so good. So like two out of 50 ain't bad. Listen, the broken clock. <laughs> you know how the saying goes. So the plot of this film, this is a 
mockumentary mostly done with like talking head interviews it stars eric idol as a filmmaker who has just directed a big blockbuster a big 200 million dollar blockbuster starring your three favorite action stars sylvester stallone jackie chan and Whoopi goldberg yes Whoopi goldberg all playing themselves by the way the movie is called trio and the head of the studio, played by Ryan O'Neill, is banking on this movie being a huge blockbuster, but he's taken it out of the director's hands and he's recut it. The director wants to take his name off the film. He wants to put an Alan Smithy credit on it, but there's a problem. His name is Alan Smithy. That doesn't really matter. Also, that joke makes no sense. No, it makes sense. They would just put another name on it. I mean, And do people think that he directed the other Alan Smithy movies too? It makes no sense, but the movie just assumes it gets endless mileage out of that joke. How do you think Whoopi Goldberg, Jackie Chan, and Sylvester Stallone felt that they were in a movie that starred the charisma dynamos of Eric Idle and Ryan O'Neill? Every time 1998 era Eric Idle or Ryan O'Neill are on screen talking to the camera. I don't know. I felt I felt comatose depression looking at these two faces. Do you find it annoying where characters turn and talk to the camera? Well, how about you had a whole movie of that? Holy fuck. This movie is an absolutely excruciating viewing experience because it's not funny. Okay, it's it's never once funny. This is the sort of movie where there will be, you know, a montage of newspaper and magazine headlines about Alan Smithy and it'll be instead of Rolling Stone, it'll say Rolling Phone or instead of the instead of the New York Times, it says the New York Slimes. Ah, good old cracked magazine. And uh, to give you an idea of the sort of Hollywood satire on display, when a journalist character is introduced, there's text on the screen that says the media, slime, scumbags, scum of the earth, like, you know, very heavy, very heavy handed satire. Like when Jackie Chan is on screen, there's a caption that comes up that says Jackie Chan, scholar, linguist, or with Sylvester Stallone, it's it's like something similar. Uh, I can't remember what it says about him. Yeah, scientists. Right. Uh, you know, Roger Ebert said it well in his review where he said that the movie feels like a home movie that like the company made to honor the outgoing boss at the Christmas dinner. You know, it has that kind of like <laughs> awkward, unfunny quality to it. And this was uh, the screenwriter, good old Joe's response to people who took down Showgirls and all the other movies that had his name on it as well. It's him doing the player. It's him being like, I'm going to take my vengeance out on Hollywood. I'm going to take my vengeance out on studio executives and know nothing directors and the media and women. Oh my God, women. He hates women. Just one shrewish harpy after another. Yeah, and those Hughes brothers, they need to be taken down as well. That's right. The Hughes brothers are represented by a pair of characters played by Coolio and Chuck D called the Brothers Brothers. Again, that's the level of satire. Very cracked magazine. <laughs> so uh, you can definitely tell that the film was edited because it has all those like free frames and like jokes and really on the nose musical drops. And Arthur Hiller said that, ah, oh, they turned my movie into an SNL skit. I gotta say, there was nothing there from the get-go. Was it like a, you know, hard, biting satire before uh, Joe got his hands on it? Well, I watched 
Eric Idle's like Eric Idle talks about his most iconic roles, you know, one of those YouTube videos. And he said in that video that Arthur Hiller's original vision was that he wanted to play it more seriously. There was more emotion in it. You know, <laughs> you, you, you felt more about Alan Smithy's plight. Apparently Esther House took all that out. So anyway, folks, we've ignored the big irony of the movie, which is, yes, it's a movie about Alan Smithy where the director, Arthur Hiller, applied for an Alan Smithy credit. And he says it wasn't a joke that he actually thought the movie was destroyed and that he cried in the car on the way to demand from the DGA that they take his name off of it. I did find this movie... Well, okay, I didn't find it interesting. I didn't find it interesting or enjoyable in any way. It's horrible to watch. Not, I mean, it's, it's so not funny. And then when you're not even laughing at it, all you're left with is just Ryan O'Neill's face. And <laughs> oh, I don't want to look at that. That's all there is to look at. And then if it's the not his face... The ravages of time come for us all if it's not his face it's eric idol's face and those are two faces i'm sorry i don't want to look at doing unfunny things just screaming in the camera the entire time that is 70 percent of the movie and then the other 30 percent sucks too we, you don't, we don't even have any like bad slapstick that we can enjoy because it's just people talking to the camera yeah it's people talking to the camera doing the most heavy-handed jokes I guess the only possible thing that could possibly be construed as interesting about this movie is just that it is, I guess, a time capsule of 1998 Hollywood in some way. Like the Ryan O'Neill movie executive character, who's clearly based on Robert Evans, who, by the way, is in this movie too. Robert Evans has a cameo. But that character, it feels a somewhat antiquated character now. You don't hear a lot about studio executives like that anymore. Studio executives now are like Bob Iger. You know, this guy's more like Don Simpson. Uh, there's a difference. Well, we do get another studio executive in this film playing a, a role multiple times on camera. Oh, oh yes. And uh, who, who is that? Uh, Harvey Weinstein. That's right. Harvey Weinstein is in this movie as a private investigator. Uh, hits different in today's context, I'll say. It's a bit like, it's, it's kind of like you're watching a movie and just Hitler shows up. <laughs> Yeah, Hitler shows up in a late period Ritz Brothers film. It's like, oh yeah, there he is, the most hated man in America. Uh, but yeah, so Burn Hollywood Burn, don't even watch it as like a joke. Like, yeah, this will be fun, right? It's not. There were times this week, I was so excited to do this topic this week. There were times watching this movie when I really thought, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> So anyway, the Alan Smithy pseudonym was retired due to the twinned combined forces of an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, which had brought the secret out into the open. Everyone was talking about it. Also, the fact that Tony Kay, the director of American History X, tried to have his name taken off that movie, believe it or not. He applied for the Alan Smithy pseudonym, and that became such a media sensation that the Directors Guild decided, this has become too public, we're not using this anymore. However, certain films have been released since then in which directors had their names changed. For example, in 2000, uh, Walter Hill was credited as Thomas Lee for the movie Supernova. More recently, David O. Russell's unfinished movie Accidental Love was released in barely finished form under the credited direction of Stephen Green. And I think the most recent example was a Keanu Reeves thriller called Exposed, uh, which also starred Anna de Armas. That was supposed to be kind of a, a more serious movie that got re-edited into being a Keanu Reeves action movie. But all those movies are bad. Don't check them out. There is not enough. Like, you want... When you hear like an Alan Smith or someone took a pseudonym, like a huge train wreck, and what you usually get is just 
blandness, which is the worst thing that you can experience, because you're probably watching a movie that was going to be bad in the first place anyway, and now all the edges are sanded However, off. However, I would like to recommend two Alan Smithy films. One is called The Nut House. Oh, I love The Nut House. Very funny film, if you ask me. One of the first films me and Will watched together. That's right. We watched it. We had very low expectations, and we were laughing all the way through. If you watch it and you don't like it, please don't tell me. I don't want to know. So, but we should just say The Nut House, directed by Adam Rifkin, someone that I do want to do an episode on because he's had a fascinating career, but also like written, produced, and executive produced by Sam Raimi, uh, Scott Spiegel, and probably Ivan Raimi as well. That's right. Ivan Raimi is credited as Alan Smithy Sr. and Sam Raimi as Alan Smithy Jr. Vinegar Syndrome, when are we getting our $60 edition of the Nut House? Because me and Will are going to be first ones in line. And here's another one. I'm not going to make any great claims for it, but for some reason, the 1989 Japanese science fiction movie Gunhead is credited to Alan Smithy in its American version. Don't know why. Don't know what edits were made to it. But uh, Gunhead, if you find it, again, don't want to make any huge claims, but it's got some really cool production design, got some really cool robots. Uh, oh, oh, and I have I have one more recommendation. The TV version of David Lynch's Dune. <laughs> That's right. The extended cut that has all the children drawings in it at the beginning. Yes, that is an Alan Smithy film. All right. So I hope we finally peeled the layer back on Alan Smithy and me and Will will not revisit this topic 10 years from now, thinking that there are other gems to be discovered. You're kidding yourself if you think that's the case i think very clearly uh we are returning to this for a patreon episode at some point we're gonna watch shrimp on the barbie we're gonna watch blood-sucking pharaohs of pittsburgh we're gonna watch uh stitches whatever that movie is oh that's the one that's directed by i can't believe i know this the guy who did rules of attraction roger avery stars eric stoltz and it's his his take on frankenstein oh incredible as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com our first letter is from joshua labelle and it goes thanks for rekindling my love for film hey important cinema club i'm a longtime listener fellow torontonian and patreon supporter thank you and i'd like to thank you for rekindling my love of cinema at a time when it was at its lowest ebb after four years of film school and four years of working in film distribution i was totally burnt out on movies and you guys made it fun again my only complaint is that you've ruined every other film podcast for me good so many other film podcasts go no further than reiterating the received wisdom about a subject. So it's great that you two start out with the received wisdom, then are willing to examine and question. Name it. names. That's what I want you to do. Name names. I have a question, or I guess a suite of questions about the sheer volume of movies you guys watch and how you feel it affects your taste. As I've grown as a film fan, I feel that my enjoyment of movies has become deeper and more textured and sophisticated, but it also gets harder to have some of those feelings of pure exhilaration or unselfconscious joy about movies that I had back when I watched fewer of them and didn't know about all the tricks. Over time, I feel that I often appreciate movies for how they're different from what I expected or for what they're not doing. It's all about the notes you don't play. And when I recommended movies to people in my social circle they often don't see what i saw in it do you feel like what you're looking for in movies has changed over the years do you ever miss the pure enjoyment you could get from movies when you were a less sophisticated viewer or is that part of yourself that you can still access does the way you watch and enjoy movies now ever alienate you from more casual moviegoers in your social circles i would say that i love the the art of cinema more than ever and i feel that if it's true that there are certain movies that you appreciate less certain 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 
uh, tricks that you're more aware of. I think that has as much to do with just knowing more about more things. I think it has to do with getting older and more worldly and wiser and more mature, not necessarily with knowing more about movies per se. I mean, there are plenty of movies that I probably like less than I used to for uh, ideological reasons, for example, and maybe some that I like more. And, you know, perhaps I like Pulp Fiction less than I did when I was 17 because I'm not 17 anymore. You know, it's just like it's it's that kind of thing. You know, you're like not not to knock Pulp Fiction. I'm just using that as an easy example. It's also like a burnout on like, guys, everybody, please talk about some other movie than Pulp Fiction for the love of God. Yeah, that's right. I, I would say that one's taste has a lot to do with context. I'm going to contradict myself. Maybe maybe because of context, there is some role that watching a lot of movies has unaffected. Listen, here's the thing. I don't sweat it too much. You watch what you like is basically what you're trying to say. And there's always something out there that I like. I mean, I always like to challenge myself too. Like I could just watch the kind of movies that, you know, give me a visceral thrill that I like when I was a teenager. And that's fun, but you know, it gets numbing after a while. You can't eat candy. It gives you a stomach ache. So I I am happy that I'm able to enjoy the movies that I really loved when I was a kid. Uh, But I'm actually more interested in new movies and going beyond that. Like I've talked about before, I rarely visit movies that I watch extensively as a child just because I watch them so much. I was looking recently and I was like, wow, I can't believe I've never rated most of Peter Jackson's movies on Letterboxd, which means I haven't watched them in like the last five, ten years. That doesn't mean you don't like them, though. That just means... No, I love them. It's just because I watch them so much. But I find that like the world of cinema is so big, there's always something new to watch. Like, just uh, this week, I was watching, like, two Argentinian film noirs that Flickr Alley put out. Never heard of them before. Like, Stone Cold Classics. Like, there's always stuff for me to get excited about out there. And as far as showing stuff to people and them not being as excited as you are for it, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of what, like, an anonymous pile of people will probably enjoy or not as a programmer. So, you know, something that I really enjoy, I can, if Will sees me like raving about it, I can tell Will, no, 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 Will, you won't like this. And nine times out of 10, he's right. Last thing I'll say is actually the more you know, the more you like, the more you want to know. That's what I have found. I should also say that I often time hear filmmakers say like, you know, now that I've made a movie, I realize that there's value in every film. And I say, bullshit. <laughs> no way. Uh, may I may I show those people a little movie called an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, uh, I'm always baffled by filmmakers who say that. And uh, listen, you can still be critical or have an opinion about a movie, even if you made movies and realize that it is incredibly hard and tiring to do. The letter continues. I love to see you guys do an episode on Mae West. I watched some of her movies for the first time recently and was blown away by the blistering pace of the jokes and the singular sensibility and worldview behind them. And I love to hear her analyze through a tourist lens. Until Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla screen at Dundas Square to an audience of fanatical Bodine heads, I remain yours, Josh LaBelle. Ah, the dream. Bela Lugosi at Dundas Square. Have you ever actually sat down and watched a movie there, Will? No, um... Although I I would, I would, but I don't know. It it doesn't seem like the best movie going environment. Eh, It seems like a pretty good environment to watch Bela Lugosi meet the Brooklyn Gorilla. Oh, well, I mean, the idea of watching that in the middle of the city. Are you kidding? I'd love to. Uh, But anyway, as to Mae West, I'm sure we will do Mae West soon. Look, folks, women are underrepresented in the history of cinema. So believe you me, we will get to Mae West. I'm not the hugest fan of Mae West, I think. I mean, I like her, but 
the the movies have never really spoken to me all that much you know I've, I've seen some of them and they're you know they're fun but there aren't any like solid gold classics in there for me how do you feel uh yeah i don't have that much of a strong opinion on may west i haven't seen any of her movies in a long time so maybe i'd get something more out of them if i watched them you know like tomorrow yeah well you know let's do that soon every time we're like we should do another woman soon may west gets tossed around so eventually the dice will land on her yeah listen we've, we've run out of women that we can do on the show <laughs> damn you cinematic history so what are we doing on our patreon this week will well folks one way to enjoy the art of cinema more is to read about it i don't know why i bothered to say that but nothing beats the imagination of the reader and hey if you like that have you ever considered the theater of the mind the radio uh <laughs> folks no we're not talking about that we are talking about our top five favorite film books we've talked about film books a lot before but now we've decided to do a definitive top five list each of us will name our ultimate final top five favorite film books what are they well there's only one way to find out and what's funny is i started the episode going there'll be no surprises on this list and will's like oh, i've never heard of that book before yeah there were one or two surprises uh, none on my list though i don't think i surprised justin once no i know will like a well-read book uh he he does patreon.com slash the important cinema club you can check out that episode and our entire back catalog so next week uh, well, I think after all these Alan Smithy films, it's time for us to have a laugh, right? You people listen to this podcast right now. You're saying these guys, these are a couple of knuckleheads. These are a couple of dumbbells. Why, these are the Laurel and Hardy of the 21st century. Well, what if I told you, what if I told you that there was a Laurel and Hardy of the 20th century? And those are the guys that we're going to talk about. Do they have any famous feature films? Well, the one that comes to mind right now is Sons of the Desert. Uh, so we should watch that one. Perhaps there are others, but when I think of Laurel and Hardy, I think of just the mass of short films that they made in the 1930s. Uh, in the 40s, obviously, they made some bad movies. In the 20s, they made silent films. I think the 30s are kind of the golden age, so we'll definitely watch Sons of the Desert, and we'll probably select a number of shorts as well. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Get out that old director George Stevens' work, and let's have ourselves a laugh. You know what we should do, though? We should talk about their last movie, Atoll K. No! No? <laughs> uh, no, yeah, let's do it. We, we always ha- do. We have to. We have to. <laughs> if we watch Abin Costello's last movie, we gotta watch uh, <laughs> Laurel and Hartle's last movie. So that's what we'll be doing next week. And until then, my name's Justin McGlue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Die, Grinch! Die! This battle will last forever unless one of us gives up. Maybe we can come to some kind of agreement. Ho, ho, ho! If it's in the Christmas spirit, maybe we can... (laughs) It's me, Jeff Scullington! I'm the new king of this mid-period in the podcast where we thank Patreon subscribers that is Christmas-themed. I'm the new king of it! And as the new king of this section, I would like to thank Josh Bayer, Josh Irons, Mark Flanagan, Morgan Bass, Jody, Billy Jackson, Sick Turtles, Snevin, Eric, Jeff Stiles, Dylan Birch, Mark Kerwin, Daniel Sheridan, Spencer, Thomas Sansot, Rashawn Smith, Teddy Buffer, Lars Henricks, Garris Pashley, Colin Bucky, and Billy. Thank you 
very much for becoming patrons of this great podcast that I am now in charge of, of this particular section. I should also say that one of the reasons I could take so much power is that no one has written a review in over a month. <laughs> so, me, Jeff Scullington, can continue to reign over this. Why not? Why can't I have my own Patreon thanks, especially one that is Christmas-themed? And with that, unless you want to go write a review, which I would very much appreciate, or will it make me weaker? I am unclear of the rules. I just know I am in power. We now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Will, are you excited? Let It Be is coming out in an eight-hour form on Disney+, Plus, directed by Peter Jackson. Yeah, speak of the devil, Peter Jackson. Obviously, Justin is talking about the brand-new, much-hyped, eight-hour Beatles miniseries. Uh, what, what, what the hell is it called? It's called Get Back, I think. Are you a Beatles fan, Will? Yes, I am a Beatles fan. I grew up loving the Beatles. I, when I was in undergrad, I was kind of obsessed with the Beatles for a while. Yeah, I was too. Is that like a weird college thing? It's like you go to college, you get obsessed with the Beatles. Yeah, you know, I think there are certain there are certain kinds of things when you're just kind of learning about the world for the first time. You're kind of being introduced to some very, very canonical things. I don't know if you ever had this experience. I remember a distinct moment in kind of my mid-20s when I was listening to the Beatles and I thought, I think I'm kind of done with this maybe like i was listening to the beatles and there there got to be a point where like i knew the song so well and also i was starting to get a bit annoyed by the by a certain quality to them that you know the kind of like doop de 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 doop you know that quality oh no had you gotten to wings is that what happened will let's just say that the paul side of the equation started to like dominate in my mind and i don't mean to disrespect the beatles obviously they're great but i kind of wore them out by the time i got to my mid-20s and so i haven't really listened to them a lot since uh i don't think i have either even though that now you're talking about them made me go i should listen to help again i like that you know maybe i should listen to it again too because i get i haven't really thought about about them that much and seeing the ads for this new beatles series i mean i'm kind of interested in seeing it because they're just a great like super group they're a great group in the sense of they've each got their own little personality and they each fill their own little function in the group and the dynamic between them is interesting to talk about and analyze and then when they broke up you see very clearly the thing that each of them brought to the group and you know that's interesting i would i mean the documentary is apparently just hours and hours of just fly on the wall hanging out with them in in a studio and that seems like a very rare privilege to be able to see that i just couldn't believe that after 50 years there was more stuff to mine i mean hasn't every every possible frame of beatles footage been found i I mean i guess not no i guess not and guess what will this is why i really wanted to bring it up looks like shit Looks awful. Yeah, so what what did he do? He, like, Irishmaned it? Okay, yeah, if people don't know what we're talking about. So they took this footage, and they, like, digitally, like, cleaned out all the grain. They also cropped it to widescreen, and so it just looks like plastic. And it was actually so distracting that I turned it off 15 minutes in. I was like, I don't want to watch this right now. Why? Why would you do that? I don't understand. Well, I mean, I know his argument. Yeah, you need to get it up for modern eyes, that... 
they won't be able to understand it or just appreciate it as new and compelling media if there is this kind of, you know, artifice on it that is brought on by the fact that it's older. Well, he made a similar argument for the documentary that he did a couple years ago about the First World War, where he took all of that World War One footage and he colorized it and he did all of his digital magic to make it look like it was shot right now. And the argument was... All of this stuff, all this historic footage, we're so used to seeing it looking old and people get distant from the reality of it. And if you if you want to communicate how brave our boys were, how how good our boys in World War One were and make that come alive for modern viewers, do this. My problem with the Beatles one is with that World War One footage, that footage is all still accessible, I assume. It's all still available. Like, this is just an alternate way to see it. Whereas with this Beatles movie, I would love it if there was a way to watch a version of this, you know, for, for those of us who can connect with media that doesn't look, doesn't look new, you know. It would be nice if we could see a version that has that texture on it, if there was an alternate version. But uh, I guess they just assume that we live in a stupid world that can't handle that. Yeah, it's really frustrating because you wouldn't think that Peter Jackson would turn to that person. Also, can I just say, I, yeah, actually, I'm getting I'm, I'm getting more and more against this idea the more we talk about it, because the whole point of the Beatles is... Yes, the music sounds timeless when you hear it sometimes, but it it is of its time. And you look at that footage, like these guys look like they're from the 60s. And it's it's bizarre and it's comical to see all of this digital sprucing done to make them look like they're they're alive right now because they've got their fucking 60s haircuts and they've got their 60s outfits on. Like it's ridiculous. This is a historic document. It looks like shit. Why didn't anybody say like no, don't do it? And I got to say, even that World War 1 documentary, I remember the interviews I read where they're like, "Ah, yes, it comes alive." Nah, it doesn't. It looks like the Reefer Madness colorized version. <laughs> like it doesn't look good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I didn't see that documentary because I don't care about our boys. Oh, man. I could go on a long <laughs> rant. And anybody who listens to the Bay Street Video Podcast knows this about me, that I loathe especially World War II films. You would not believe how many are released every week. Like, seemingly five to ten every week from around the world. That's interesting. Who's who's watching all those movies? Old people! <laughs> That's who's watching them. I guess. Because they want a victory. They want something that is like pat and understandable that's why they watch world war ii films interesting okay they're probably more popular than ever then god it is unbelievable how many world war ii films there are okay no thank you that's what i say will i watch this beatles documentary you know what i may crack because the idea of watching them just hang out for eight hours is really tempting but my god it hurts my eyes to watch it and it terrifies me that uh, Peter Jackson is like, oh, yeah, the 4K remasters of Dead Alive and Bad Taste are coming. If they look like that, no thank you. I have an idea. Get the Beatles documentaries and can you uh, flick your TV to make it look in black and white? Because that would make it look better. It wasn't shot in black and white. I want those those colors, those help colors. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We'll, we get Peter Jackson on the podcast. We just show him the light. He'll understand. I'm a big fan. And if not, we'll kill him. Oh, my God. Will said that, not me, PJ. 